0: If you have your Bibles with you today and you want to turn to a, one of the passages we're going to kind of be dissecting a little bit today is Philippians chapter 4, verses 10-13. through 13. If you have your manuals I believe it's page 83. Um, before we get going I want to take a moment and look at the big picture, alright? Uh, so, for those of you who may be visiting or new today... Um, about a year ago, actually February the twelfth of twenty twenty-three, we started a journey we call the Three D Disciples Journey. Um, as uh, and the idea of that is we're developing disciples as we display God's love, as we prepare to deploy into God's world. And so our goal in the Three D Disciples is not just to be able to tell people about Jesus, not just to show them a picture of Jesus, but to go be a three-dimensional living Jesus in this world. Um, that's kind of the idea of that, and so we've been on this journey. We call it a journey, and it's been, like I said, um, we are at our anniversary. Um, so, and as I said at the beginning this morning, we're getting ready, kind of, for our Easter break. Um, starting next week, we're going to take four weeks just to kind of focus and prepare ourselves for Easter. The the most important day in all of history is Easter Sunday, and at least in my opinion. And so, we're going to kind of take some time to focus over that. Uh, today's sermon is the last sermon in chapter 6. So, chapter 6 is, is living in God. But but because we've been on this journey and it's been so long every once in a while we need to step back and see the big picture of what we are doing, uh, and where we've come, and where we are at. So, we are in the development stage talking about developing disciples. And so far we've covered in chapter 1 we we looked at in some detail what it means to establish a relationship with God. What's it, what does it mean to get saved, or regenerated, born again, uh, what does it take to, to establish the right relationship with God? And we talked about that, what it means to come spiritually alive. In chapter 2 we looked at what it means to mature that spiritual life, how to take care of that you have this spiritual life in you. How do you grow that? How do you mature that? How do you see that that life, your spiritual life is healthy? And so we talked about that. <coughs> chapter 3 we talked about what I call the first of the big three. Like There's three kind of non-negotiables to being a disciple. There's, there's three, at least three, but there's three main things that it seems like God expects of His church, of, of His disciples, of His children. And the first one is self-denial. It says, you can't be my disciple unless you deny yourself and follow me. And so, that's huge, right? That's one of the big three, and we talked about that. The second big three is forgiveness. Like, He taught us Forgive us as we forgive our debtors, right? And he says, if you don't forgive those who sin against you, your Father won't forgive you. And so, that's a non-negotiable. Disciples are forgivers, right? And then the third one is unity. That in my estimation, the thing that, that validated the first century church more than anything Was the unity between all the people, like Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, men and women, all coming together, all serving their community, all unified. That was the one thing that a very divided country, a very divided society could not ignore. Like something is going on to make all these enemies now love one another. And so those are the at least big three things we need to focus on as disciples. When we've done all that, Our relationship is good with God, right? We've established it, we've taken care of it, we've lived up to the expectations or the commands, the instructions that God wants us to live up to. And so then chapter 6 was all talking about what it is to live with God. What does it mean now, it, it presently in this life, how does having a relationship with God change, affect, live out itself in our daily living? We talked about what it means to behold God, that we get to know Him and approach Him and commune with Him. We talked about living with the presence of the Holy Spirit, that He's in us, and we start to bear the fruit of the Spirit and what that looks like, about abiding with God, drawing near, and staying close with God. We talked about the freedoms that this relationship with God offers us. And then we recently talked about how this relationship with God affects our most difficult days as we face suffering with hope, endurance, courage, reliance, and yes, even joy. And so today we are going to call, uh, bring the culmination of this relationship. This is the last lesson in chapter 6, what I think is probably one of the most, maybe the pinnacle of the experience of the discipleship. Like, like when you have a right relationship with God, this is where it all leads to, and that is contentment. That, that being in a right, vibrant relationship just brings a sense of contentment to you, and no matter what. And so, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, we're going to read that in a moment. Again, if you're taking notes in your manual, there's a place on page 83 where we talk about contentment. As always, we encourage you to write down what you hear. As the Spirit talks to you and kind of shares with you today about this message, and then figure out either today or tomorrow what you're going to do (laughs) about what you heard. Those are the two questions that we regularly address in our manual. And so here we go Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And so, that last thing, we've heard that passage, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me so many times. But really, that verse is meant to give us contentment, right? That no matter what I face, I can handle it, I can deal with it. I know how to do this because God will give me the strength. Now, the first thing I want to point out is contentment is a descriptive of disciples. And there's a number of disciples, there's a number of followers, servants of God that were noted for their contentment. Paul is the first one. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, he's the one who wrote this Philippians, this to the Philippians, when he says I know how to be content. Also in 2, he wrote to the Corinthians in verse chapter 12 verse 10, he says for the sake of Christ then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities for when I am weak he is strong. Then I am strong. Talking about the Lord strengthens him in his weakness, right? So, he, Paul recognizes his contentment over and over. Moses in Exodus chapter 2 verse 21 was noted for his contentment. He had left the the house of Pharaoh. He ends up in Midian and and he meets uh, one of the daughters of Midian. It says, and Moses was content to dwell her with her father, and, Mo- and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Geshron, and he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days of the king, uh, many days the king of Egypt died. And one of the things you got to remember about Moses, he was a very content man. After leaving Pharaoh because of murdering the Egyptian, he, he goes off and hides. He, he finds this, this man, he feeds. He waters the, the, his camel, and the daughter brings him home, and he says he's content to stay with the man. Well, that sounds good enough. For 40 years, he was content and stayed in a foreign land before God called him back to be the Moses that we think of, leading the Hebrew children out of bondage, right? So 40 years he sojourned. 40 years, he was a shepherd in the desert for this man, content to be there. And so Moses is noted for his contentment. Job, may be one of the most content people in the world or at least makes one of the most content statements that we've ever heard. In chapter 1, verse 21, Job says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That has to be one of the most content statements. If you know, he just lost everything, family, home, and health, right? (laughs) And he's like, blessed be the name of the Lord. Timothy we're going to see in a few, moment, in a few minutes in first Timothy chapter 6 Timothy almost repeats what Job says as Paul is instructing him to be content or it's said to Paul's writing to Timothy and he tells Timothy repeats almost what Job says we'll see that in a few minutes in Hebrews the disciples at large are encouraged in chapter 13 verse 5 keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he said i will never leave you nor forsake you. So the, Hebrew children, the Hebrews are being written to, the disciples that are being written to in the book of Hebrews are encouraged, just be content. Life is tough, but be content with what you have. And then of course, Jesus. And there's one statement that Jesus makes. That I think we see him living a life of contentment. Obviously, he was perfect and was contentment. But there's a, there's a, there's a verse he says, and, and when I read it, I don't hear his voice. I, I don't hear any complaint as he says, to the man who, who would fall, and says, "'The foxes have their hole, holes, and birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to even lay his head.'" That Jesus seemed to be very content with the life of serving the Lord, no matter how rough that was for him, right? He, he didn't have a house. He didn't, you may remember one story, he didn't even have the money to pay his taxes at one point, right? You know, it, and, he, and he lives a life looking, like our, like our verse said this morning, seeking first the kingdom of God, and he had what he needed added to him. And so, contentment is certainly one of the descriptives of, of a disciple, So, what is contentment? Well, searching searching the dictionary um, I I discovered that contentment is a noun, and it's defined feelings of happiness in one's situation in life. Now, I struggle when we start talking about being happy. because I don't think contentment is necessarily happy. Um, I think it it has some other ideas. As I looked up the uh, synonyms for contentment it uses words like fulfillment, satisfaction, serenity, and peace. So, I would probably define it as having a sense of, pick your favorite, right? having a sense of fulfillment in one's circumstances, having a sense of satisfaction in one's circumstances, having a sense of serenity or peace in one's circumstances. Whatever the circumstances are, having this peace, this contentment in our lives. Maybe it's better if we think about the antonym, uh, discontentment is the opposite of being content, right? It can be a noun and it, and it, says it describes a restless desire or a craving for something that one does not have. It can be used as an adjective which means showing ex- experiencing dissatisfaction. Again, a restless longing. A longing for something better, right? Or at least something that appears to be better. If you're familiar with the, the old wise saying, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. That, that discontentment is always wanting to get to the grass on the other side. And then often we go over there and we find out, well, it's not as green on this side as it was where I came from. It appears that's something we want. And really discontentment is just wanting what we don't have. In a lot of cases and not necessarily better or not better. But contentment is just being satisfied with your circumstances, whatever that is, just being at peace with them. And as we think about those gentlemen that we mentioned, those, those saints of old, many of them were satisfied, fulfilled, had peace and serenity in all kinds of circumstances. But back to this passage if you're there. In this passage Paul identifies two areas of danger where contentment is the cure. All right. The first area of danger is the danger of lack. Right? He's like, I know how to be content when I'm brought low, when I'm in need, when, when I don't have what I need. I've learned to be content in the face of lack or, or not having what I want. I think most of the time disciples handle, handle this pretty well. You know, in every circumstance I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And so I think for us to face this, And deal with this, we have to face it with assurance over doubt. Again, the very passage that we just happened, quote unquote, to read this morning is like, don't be anxious for your body. Don't be worried about these things. Be content, right? Consider the lilies, consider the birds. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I told you last week that I've been listening to this book called The Insanity of God, and it's filled with amazing stories. If you don't have a book to read and you're looking for something that might change your life, I would again encourage you to read this it's amazing and it's filled with stories as this, as, as the writer travels the world and, and visits persecuted Christians around the world there's several stories about uh, particularly pastor's wives once the pastor was arrested and put in jail the wife and her kids have no way to provide for themselves and there's stories and stories and stories about how God miraculously provided for these people in their in their moments of need like there's one where a lady she puts on her smock and she just goes down to the local uh, kind of open-air market and she just walks through the market. And then when she gets home all her pockets are filled with food and money and the things that she needed to feed her kids that day. And she just walks through the crowd and people slip things into the church. The hidden church slips things into her and, and provides for her. There's a miraculous story and I want to share this one because this one, this is one of those things when you read it and you're like, man that's, that's challenging. It's the story of a, of a deacon. He, he's walking by the Holy Spirit in the middle of the night like, in, like 12 midnight. And this is in Russia in Siberia. And the Holy Spirit says, you need to go and take some food, saddle your horse, take, to, grab some food, and take it to the pastor's wife that's over here in this shack because she and her children are starving. And the man starts to argue with the Spirit, says, but it's the middle of the night, and it's, it's you know, below freezing out there, and, and, and if I go, there's wolves everywhere, and the wolves are likely to attack me and, and eat me and my horse and everything else. I, I, and he argues with God about going, and he's like, if I go, I won't make it back. And he said, the Holy Spirit said, you don't need to make it back to do my will. But you need to go to do my will. And and it was a challenge. How often do we think when we serve God, we're like, well, I got to figure out the whole plan and how am I getting back? And sometimes it's just about going and not worrying about whether you come back or not to be obedient. I've experienced in my own life, I read these stories and we hear these stories and we're amazed and we wonder, does God still work like that? I can tell you that I've experienced similar things in my own life, quite honestly. There was a time uh, early on in my father's ministry when he was going to school, was working a full-time job, uh, was trying to get his education and and, and move us on. And and, and I remember the night we sat down in in our house and they broke out the, the last of the bread and the last of the peanut butter and made sandwiches for us. And we sat down and we each got a peanut butter sandwich and we sat down to eat. And we prayed and we ate our sandwiches and that was the last in the cupboard. And about five minutes after we finished eating, somebody knocked on the door. And uh, my dad went and opened the door, and people from our church walked in brought 30-some back groceries. This was back in the day when we used to have grocery bags, you know, you not know, even the little plastic ones, the big paper bags, right? 30 bags of groceries walked in our house, and they put them down and said, we love you all, and they walked out. You know, I, I can tell you that, that the Lord will provide. And we have to face those times Of uh, lack with contentment that comes from assurance and faith, right? That the Lord will provide and we must trust Him. And it's only in those situations do we get to see the miraculous happen. The other danger that uh, Paul identifies is the danger of abundance. That that often we think about, well well, I got everything I need so I'm taken care of. But abundance is about a, is a doesn't necessarily make us content, right? Uh, this is what he wrote to Timothy in Timothy chapter 6 that I referenced earlier. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we, are, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. Kind of referencing back what Job said, right? But if you have food and clothing, with these you, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Like abundance doesn't necessarily make you content either. And so we need to face those times with humility and generosity. as we, in our moments of abundance, not to, to rely on having enough. Too many people, especially in our world, try to secure themselves with their abundance, right? And, and they find themselves always seeking and wanting more and wanting more. In truth, contentment addresses some deeper issues we face with. You know, it's not just the lack in abundance. It really addresses some, some, some sin, some uh, deeper heart and soul issues that contentment really helps us deal with. First of all, contentment, uh, can you advance that one for me? There you go. Defends against covetedness. right? Now we've all probably remember the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20 verse 17, it says, "You shall not covet." your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything your neighbor has, right? In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, it says, And he said to them, take care, be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in abundance of his possessions. When somebody had come to Jesus and they are like, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. And he's like, be careful keep yourself free from all covetousness because it, your possessions won't is more important than your life. I think King David is probably a positive example in many areas of the Bible, right? We we see his faith as he stands before Goliath. We see his his in a lot of ways his contentment with the Lord as he was promised to be the king, but he waits and he honors Saul until God makes him king. But there is at least one area where David may have struggled a bit, right? And it's with covetousness, right? And he's a perfect example of showing us how abundance doesn't stop you from coveting, right? Because if you remember the story, he had everything he wanted, everything he needed. He had multiple wives except for one. And he wanted the one he didn't have. And he coveted her so much that he took her... And murdered for it. When he's confronted in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan says to him, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Because he wasn't content, even in his abundance. He wasn't content with having it all. He wanted the one thing he didn't have, and he took it. And so he is a negative example in showing us how contentment um, is something that we need to work on. You know, we live, and the truth of the matter is, we live in a covetous land. I mean, much of our country is built on the idea of coveting. If you don't believe me, watch a commercial. Most of the marketing is aimed at saying, well everybody else has this, don't you want it? Right? So and so's got this, don't you think you need it? And they play on this, this broken part of our soul That we want what our neighbor has. We want what we don't have. And I may have enough, but I got to have one more. And and you may have seen the bumper sticker. There was once a bumper sticker that said, He who dies with the most toys wins. And then Christians came out with a a counter bumper sticker to that. He who dies still dies. You know, and and we would be wise to learn from what, what Paul was telling Timothy. You know, be content with what you got. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Seeking for abundance doesn't do anything but hurt you. And so, contentment is a descriptive of the disciple that we need to try to develop and grow and pray for in our lives. Especially for you and I who live in a society saturated with covetness But it promotes and encourages us to covet each and every day. One of the great things I love really to be honest about streaming TV now because we don't have to watch it the old-fashioned way, you know, that I can stream it. You can skip through most of the commercials or have no commercials whatsoever. I don't miss those things. But then you go to social media and they get you there, right? Um, And so it's the same thing. The other issue that contentment protects us from is protects us from desire. So a different verse, kind of a similar idea, but James in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he kind of lays out how sin works, right? And here's what he says. He says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire, that the desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings about death. But the thing that leads us into temptation and then leads us into sin is these own desires in our heart. And when we are able to be content with what we have and say, I don't desire, it, it, really the, the battle against sin, the battle against temptation is learning to kill your desires. Like, and, and that's what, kind of how the Bible talks about, it. be dead to yourselves because dead men don't want anything. And if we can get to where we don't want anything, then we're protected from this pathway of temptation, sin, and death. And so being content helps us fight our battle against temptation and sin. The real problem with us is our water's broken, right? The, the, the desires that in my heart, I want the wrong things. And if I can get my water fixed <laughs> and like and gourd, help me fix my desires, then I can have victory over temptation and sin. You know, I, I, I'll be honest, I go through phases, I think about things, and I try to implement things into my life to, to help me grow spiritually, to be the disciple that I want to be, to be the, the follower of Jesus I hope to be. One of the things that I've recently been doing with this in mind, trying to get my water fixed, is I have started making sure that I close most of my prayers with the words Jesus taught us to pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, that my desire, I want my desire to be his desires. I want my will to be his will, or as Jesus said in the garden, you know, not my will, but your will be done. And so I've been consciously trying to pray every time I pray to say, I've told you what I want. (laughs) I told you what I think. I've laid my heart before you. You know, these are what I hope will happen. Now let me wrap it up with your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because I still might be wanting the wrong thing. You take control. And let me be content where I am. One of the great things about contentment, though, is contentment is, is learnable. Paul says in Philippians, he says, I have learned to be content, right, in whatever situation. And so he's, I hope, I, I identify with Paul in a lot of ways. Um, I, I appreciate him a lot. I find myself and him a lot, especially when he talks to Timothy and he says, you know, I am the chief of sinners. That's one of my favorite lessons. And, and, he, and he goes on to say, uh, I have found grace, basically to bring hope to everybody else. Because if God can do something with me, He can certainly do something with everybody else. And I, and I agree with that. And, and, and contentment is something that I'm trying to learn. I'll, I'll be honest, most of my life I have been very discontent. I spent my life chasing after this thing and that thing, and when I'd get something else, I'd want to do something else, and I, I never could find a satisfaction, a peace, and, 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 I, and I tried this, and I tried that, and I was always looking around the corner for something else until uh, a mentor of mine uh, came and confronted me one day, and um, this was right before I entered the ministry, and he's like, Jason, like every two years, you're doing something else, Every two years you're chasing something else. He's like, if you do this, my challenge to you is not to leave your first church for at least five years. And, and he called me out right to my face. And, and, you know, and you know how I reacted when he did that, right? <laughs> Who does he think he is telling me what? Duh, 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 duh. So I got home, realized he was absolutely right. And so I made a promise to myself that I would try to honor and learn to be content. I'm proudish to say that I served my first church for seven years. I, sorry to tell you, I had to do better, so I'm going in my 13th year here, right? And, I, and I'll be honest. I, I walked across my yard one day after we moved into our house. Walked in and I talked to Shelley, And I said, for the first time in my life, I know what it feels like to be content. I have found a contentment in this place, in this state, in this county that I have never experienced in my life. And so I am living proof that contentment is learnable. <laughs> um, and so I want to read to you um, Psalm 16. If you want to turn to Psalm 16, this, I, I have retitled this the contentment psalm. Because I think that's what flows out of that. And we're going to take one verse, and and I'm going to give you some things to think about to help you grow your own contentment or possibly learn how to be more content if you're like me and that's something you struggle with. First, let's read the whole psalm, and then we're going to take one verse and look at it a little bit more in depth. Verse number one. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you have not abandoned abandoned my soul to Sheol, or the grave, or let the body of the Holy One see corruption." For you make, me, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. So if you want to grow in contentment, if you want to learn to be more content, there's one verse in this psalm that I think kind of sums it up. It's become one of my favorite verses. This is one that I repeat to myself or try to repeat to myself quite often. It's verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup you hold my lot. If you want to learn to be contentment, you learn, memorize, and say this verse. Because first of all, it points out that contentment arises from the desire for God. You are my chosen portion and my cup. I choose God to satisfy me. You are the food for my soul. You are the drink for my spirit. You are what I choose. You are what I want. I desire God. God is my chosen portion. He's the best. He's the best thing. And that's what I want. I choose God. And so contentment, first of all, arises from our desire for God. And then it rests In our trust of God. The verse goes on. The Lord is my chosen portion. You hold my cup. I desire you. You hold my lot. I trust you. My lot in life is in your hands. I desire you. I trust you. In those two verses, that's where I find real contentment. All I want is God. All I need is God. And I ultimately trust him. In my, you hold my lot. Whatever befalls me, God has got me. And so I encourage you to memorize, whoops, that verse as you try to grow contentment. As you let your relationship be satisfied with the relationship of God. He's worth it all. In the story of the the parable of the great pearl, the, the man sells everything so he can obtain this one thing. The one thing that matters is a relationship with God. When you have that, everything else is okay. You are my chosen portion and my cup, you hold my lot.